Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Marketing Life podcast, brought to you by the Product Marketing Alliance. I'm your host, Mark Cazzini, Product Marketing Manager at Jobber. Every two weeks, I connect with PMMs all over the world about a product marketing topic of their choice. On this week's episode, I'm joined by John Neher, Product Marketing Manager at Vendasta. Before he began his product marketing journey, John started out as a teacher and a self-proclaimed semi-professional musician. After settling down with his partner in Saskatoon, Canada, John launched his career in tech with Vendasta, first in customer success and support, before transitioning into customer onboarding and now product marketing. Vendasta is an end-to-end platform for local experts who market, sell, fill, fulfill, and deliver digital solutions to small and medium businesses. There, John and over 600 other Vendasta employees work with over 5.5 million local businesses and more than 60,000 global agencies, managed service providers, and media companies. During our chat, John and I explore the power of qualitative data as part of our product marketer's storytelling toolkit. John provides helpful guidance on how to elevate the importance of qualitative data within a quantitative-focused environment, while listing some tools he's found helpful in uncovering qualitative data that goes beyond traditional customer interviews. Before I get into the episode, I've got some exciting news to share from the Product Marketing Alliance. Are you wondering how to align the product marketing function at your organization? Do your internal teams have little or no understanding of what product marketing is and the benefits you bring to the fore? Are you sick of being misunderstood? Product Marketing Alliance's brand new book, Misunderstood, features firsthand knowledge, techniques, and case studies to help you demystify product marketing, elevate the function, and gain the recognition you and fellow PMMs deserve. Learn how to effectively communicate the value you bring to key processes such as positioning, personas, segmentation, OKRs, and gain supplementary intel from the likes of Privy, G2, Hotjar, Intercom, Zendesk, Adobe, and Drift. Misunderstood is packed with takeaways that'll propel the value of your role and the overall importance of the PMM function and isn't to be missed. Get your copy at pmmalliance.co slash misunderstood. That's pmmalliance.co slash misunderstood. Hey, John, how's it going? It's going well, thank you. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Super excited to have you here today. I'm really excited to be here. I was saying just before um, that I was like dreaming of podcasting, which is not too typical of me. So I'm I'm definitely excited about being here. Awesome. Well, like I said, I'll try and make this as much of a dream as possible for you. And hopefully our listeners will enjoy, um, you know, the experience as well. So I'll get right into my questions here. You've had a fairly unique career so far. Would you mind taking me through your path to where you are today as a product marketing manager? Yeah. And we could really like, this is going to probably pad out the episode time a ton, um, but I'll try to keep it brief while still touching on everything. Cause I think it's really important to my outlook as a, as a product marketer. Um, and I'll probably dive into that a little bit more throughout the episode, but um, my journey to product marketing doesn't start with product marketing at all. Um, it starts, um, I suppose really in university, let's like, let's just go, okay, uh, graduated from high school. What do you want to do? Uh, I really like playing music. Uh, I did pretty well at school. I'm going to be a music teacher. I'm going to teach music in schools. So I went through university for that. I did, um, uh, quite well. I had some really great mentors. I was kind of getting lined up to have a very, uh, stable, successful career. Um, and then I did, 
one year of teaching, I, you know, I got my degree. I, I, I taught in some elementary schools um, and I liked teaching with the kids. They're funny, they're weird, um, but uh, adults, tough, real tough, um, whether they're inside or outside of, uh, you know, the classroom. So I said, okay, well, um, I really like music um, and I'm having some success playing. So for a few years, I was uh, what I'd call like a semi-professional musician, where um, I think a professional musician is really, really making their, their living just like performing, recording. I did a bit of that. Um, and then I also would do some teaching, some education camps and things like that, since I have a lot of experience in education. But then um, uh, I found a wonderful woman. Um, we got uh, engaged, getting uh, looking at starting to lay down roots a little bit more and, and possibly contribute a little bit more to the family. Um, and was kind of looking to see what else there would be out there. Um, and specifically, um, my wife, uh, who's a lawyer, got a job uh, in uh, Saskatoon, which is home now. And uh, I was like, okay, you know what? I guess this is kind of like the opportunity. I'm gonna like really shift gears, figure out what I'm gonna do. And uh, so we made that choice in the summer of uh, 2019. And we were uh, moving to Saskatoon in May uh, 2020. And for those uh, astute historians of, out there, you probably recognize that, oh, hey, some pretty big things happened between those two periods. Um, and so, the job market for someone who wasn't really interested in being a teacher um, and uh, was a musician kind of, was very um, broad, uh, you know? It was, it's what, what am I going to do? What am I gonna do to make uh, a good experience? So I uh, looked at uh, any of the companies that were hiring in Saskatoon. And one of them happened to be where I am today, uh, Vendasta. It's uh, a bit of a, a tech darling here in the prairies of uh, prairies of Canada. And so I had heard the name. I didn't really know what they did. And uh, there were a bunch of positions available. And I first applied for uh, a curriculum instructor. Um, or, or so we have sort of an online academy sort of thing. I'm sure our listeners are familiar with the concept. And I applied for that. Didn't get it. Um, and so I said, well, dang it, I just need something, anything. And so I started out in Vendasta as a uh, support specialist, tech support, effectively. No real tech experience. Um, Vendasta's general um, market would be digital marketing, and I don't particularly have experience in the digital marketing field. So I just started out in support and found I was pretty good at it, with it being talking to customers, listening to customers, um, answering questions for them, making them uh, move forward in the buying cycle, whatever the case may be. And so over the course of a year, I ended up having four different titles. Um, so I started out in, in the success. Uh, a success support specialist was the role. I moved on to an onboarding role in four months. Um, so as an individual contributor, bringing on our new businesses, showing them the platform, teaching them about it. Uh, in four months, we did a little bit of a, a restructure where we were, were looking at having a teams based on vertical. 
And so I was a captain of a team uh, based on a new vertical that we were expanding into. Uh, and then I became a people manager, mostly just working with the teams and, and kind of building processes and understanding what we would um, do to effectively bring, bring our customers on board. And uh, while I was a manager, about three times, uh, our director of product marketing uh, was tapping me on the shoulder and saying, hey, you know, we got these positions available and really like your presentations. Have you, have you considered applying? And for two times I said no, because I was kind of like, I've moved so much already. Like, what am I doing here? Um, but then the third time we uh, sat down and had a real good conversation about it. And uh, I became a product marketer uh, this January, so the start of the year. So we're um, pretty, you know, eight months, uh, eight months in, and uh, it's been it's been a very uh, varied path to get here. Um, but uh, it's really, really informed, I think, my understanding of the, the product marketing function and and my role in the company. Yeah, I can imagine. Thanks so much for sharing that very detailed breakdown of, of your career so far. And I think for anybody listening who is thinking about pursuing a career in product marketing or looking to answer the question around how do I crack into product marketing with no product marketing experience, I think your journey at Vendesta alone is a good path potentially to emulate. Um, I know quite a few product marketers who begin their careers in customer support, customer success. And I think that perspective gives you such a good insight into what the customer experiences are, whether they're positive ones, whether they're negative ones that are, I would imagine, so fundamental in informing how you approach product marketing with that customer lens in place. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, was there anything in particular in coming from a support background that you have felt has maybe influenced how you approach product marketing? We'll get into a little bit more detail about how that's influenced your approach to, to data, um, but just more generally speaking, uh, how, what has the influence there been? I think one of the biggest things about um, my time in customer success was uh, this might be a this might be a term uh, throughout the industry. I don't know. I'm such a junior. Um, but uh, uh, in in our building, we call it the uh, X Y problem, uh, where someone says, "I want to do X," so the solution is obviously Y. Um, but uh, so, so often that's not the case. And so what I mean by that is someone would come into our support chat, for example, and say, hey, I need to export um, all of my, my Facebook contact lists. And I'd say, oh, I'm sorry, we can't do that, you know, for whatever reason. I said, no, I need to do this. Uh, I've gone here, I've gone here, I've gone. And you, so then you kind of ask, well, why do you need to do that? And, and it really diving into the why, um, I would sometimes find some really good solutions and say, oh, you know what, actually, um, we can solve this problem this way, or this problem that you're having, maybe if we took a step back, um, here would be a really good process. Um, I understand your job to be done. What I'm trying to do is uh, find um, all of the people I need to sell Facebook uh, marketing to or something. Um, and that was a skill I really, really had to uh, learn and hone in. And then also specifically in our, um, I don't know, again, I don't know what this is like in other uh, organizations, but in ours, um, 
our customer success team is really, really involved with uh, uh, the PMs and the devs. So we have a really uh, strong lines of communication where we'll be coming in and talking about the problems. And I, I uh, developed a really, really good understanding of, okay, this is how I can explain the problem, explain, uh, or like maybe like quantify the impact of, of changing something uh, to our development team so that they can say, oh, hey, you know, this is something that we need to do. And that was probably, uh, that was probably the thing that first got me um, moving forward was just being able to really ask those whys and understand the, the problems behind what people were saying. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's such a helpful insight. And I know oftentimes when product marketers are charged with working very closely with product marketing or product, uh, the product development team rather, uh, in defining things like the roadmap or essential areas within the product to improve or address issues, a good source of inspiration for that work is oftentimes the success team or the support team or support tickets. Um, you know, if you work at an organization where there are good processes in place to track that feedback, to tag it, to quantify it. Um, you know, it's a great place to start when you're thinking about tackling some of those, those meteor projects. Um, and it does help, as you said, the quantify the impact or the, the severity of the issue. Um, you know, and, and I think you highlighted another good uh, thing here is this idea of workarounds. Oftentimes customers are creative. They will find workarounds or work with you on working on finding workarounds. Um, and if you have a good workaround documentation process in place, you can start to identify, maybe this workaround should just be fixed and we should actually create a new workflow or a new solution that addresses this specific workaround. Um, so thank you for sharing that. I think that helps provide some good guidance on where product marketers can look to for inspiration in addressing certain areas of the, of the product. So thank you for that. So. You talked a little bit about your experiences to date in customer success and support, um, but I want to touch on another part of your career, and it's very closely related to a conversation I had just recently with Andy Peavy for episode 64 around how hip-hop and music informed David's approach to storytelling and how he felt you know, his love of hip-hop made him a better storyteller. I'm curious, given your own background, is there anything from your time as a musician that you felt has bled into your career as a product marketing manager? Yeah, this is a really good question. And I was listening to the episode um, with Mark and I sort of thought absolutely no shade to him, but I really didn't relate to it at all. And I think part of that might be just um, the modes of how we're making music. I'm primarily uh, like a keyboardist. Um, I mean, I taught uh, elementary music so I can play every instrument well enough to teach it. 13 year old, but um, it was that non, non, non uh, verbal, non storytelling, I suppose, aspect of music. So some of the, the, that piece of, of, of um, storytelling or, or the, the actual act of making music, I don't know if I, I feel any super strong correlations to it. I can make uh, some, some decent arguments about uh, I have a really good jazz background, and jazz is very much a language of you understand these pieces. Uh, you're you're playing within a formula. You're um, uh, working with these constraints and 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 collaborating. I think all of that is true to an extent, but I don't I don't see it. I don't feel it. It doesn't resonate with me necessarily. Um, but as a musician, 
as a semi-professional musician, um, I really, really think the work that I've done to make a, a, a money-making career or, or a income generating, uh, maybe not money-making, just, just barely, uh, that's something that I've really taken with me and I've really brought to any role, any job, any experience. Um, as, a, as a musician, I've played in Seoul. Um, I've, I've uh, done international folk festivals and, and uh, done all these different um, uh, showcase festivals is, is the industry term where you're going and there's these people who have a whole bunch more money than you that are listening to you and you have to talk to them and explain why um, they should come check out your show at a not so cool bar. Um, and a lot of those sort of business uh, uh, skills, sort of the soft business skills, learning how to um, market your band, uh, how to um, even do things like write marketing plans. Um, Mark, you and I are in, in Canada and we're really fortunate to have a great uh, granting agencies um, where you can write into um, uh, different government agencies and uh, they'll ask for things like a marketing plan and um, you know what, what, what's your target demographics and all these things. And if you write about it well enough, then they might help you uh, travel to Seoul or whatever the case may be. And so I've been involved with things like that. Um, and so those things, I've, I've really, those are the things that I, I think about most when I'm working in my product marketing um, job is all of the opportunities I've had to market a, a sort of unique product as also very much not a, a, an industry leader as, you know, the bottom 10% of the world or whatever the case may be. And, and I think that's been probably the biggest carryover from my music career into uh, my, my product marketing career. I think that's great. And I think what that illustrates so well is again, much like we just talked about, oftentimes when people ask, how can I crack into product marketing? The challenge they often put in front of themselves is, well, I don't have product marketing experience or I don't even have marketing yeah on my resume anywhere. But as you just so, I think, beautifully demonstrated, it's about finding the pockets of your career experiences to date that may not have been clearly defined as marketing, but demonstrate marketing skills and acumen. So I think if I can kind of resummarize what you said, less about the inspiration from being a musician and the creative aspect, as was in the case of Danny, more so the entrepreneurial element of having to, as you said, market your band, build a a business really around being a musician. So I, I think that's really helpful for anybody, again, aspiring to become a product marketer, uh, is to, to look at experiences like your own and find those pockets of marketing experiences that you can build a story around um, to, to demonstrate that you, you, know, you know what you're talking about when you're in those interviews and, and taking on those responsibilities for the first time. Yeah, and just to think of, I just thought of one specific example of like, I remember, um, being in a workshop where they were like, okay, you know, to get people to listen to your music, here's the like formula. And basically what they were doing was like category creation. My band is like Tom Waits meets uh, the U2 with a sprinkle of Elvis from the sixties or whatever. And now I recognize, oh, you know, you're just, you're just positioning yourself in the market so that people have the right frame to understand you. Um, but I was just like, oh yeah, Cool. Um, these are this is this is how you figure out about my band. I love that. 
And again, I, th- I think oftentimes when people are pursuing opportunities, either for roles within their current organization, whether it's in new industries, fields, companies, especially as product marketers, we sometimes forget, like we are to varying degrees, experts in positioning. So in the same way you would product or, or position rather your product or your service or your company, you should be positioning yourself. So I think that's another great insight. Thank you for sharing that. Cause it, it truly is, I think another way to reflect and look back on, again, those experiences that might not be defined classically as product marketing or marketing more broadly that a lot of people probably do possess. They just haven't taken the chance to, to really reflect on. So, so thank you for sharing that. All right. So this has been great. It's been great to get to know about you and your career so far. I appreciate you sharing your insights, but let's just shift gears so slightly and focus a little bit more on the topic at hand today. And that's this concept of the importance of qualitative data. And I think oftentimes with product marketing, when we talk about qualitative data, we kind of default to customer interviews, right? Like the greatest ever source of qualitative data. However, as I'm sure a lot of product marketers experience, those aren't always the easiest to execute. Customers are busy. You are one of maybe 10, 20 different software providers that they've been reached out to for insights about you know, X, Y, or Z. Um, so if that's the case, I'm curious, what other forms of qualitative data would you recommend a product marketer pursue if they can't make a customer interview happen? And closely related to that, are there any specific tools you might recommend that may make capturing or exploring qualitative data a little bit easier? Yeah, um, there's so, so many. And maybe first, um, before talking about um, products, uh, we'll touch on some things that we already talked about. And one of those is uh, the customer success team. So. So much of uh, um, my product marketing insight has really come from speaking to and understanding um, not only um, you know the customers, but then the insight I'm hearing from the customer success team uh, from the customers. So, okay, what are the customer uh, uh, what are the customer success team really dealing with? And when they're saying that, what does that mean sometimes? Um, another example, very similar, and it's not too surprising, but is the sales team. You know, what are the sales teams saying? Um, I'm really fortunate. Uh, our customer success and sales team is like almost all based here in Saskatoon, um, and as am I. And so it's really easy for me to just walk over, have a conversation, uh, sit with the team sometimes, um, you know, just kind of be in their shoes for a day. And you can definitely get a really good picture of a moment um, with with those those experiences. So I think those are primary, like maybe not primarily, but those are something that just can't can't be overlooked. But then there are still a lot of tools available that can help make things easier. Um, We think about, you know, those those uh, recording uh, technologies. Um, if you're really, really bootstrapped and you're just going into Zoom recordings or something or Google Hangout recordings, that's cool. Um, our organization uses Wingman, um, uh, like a Gong uh, a competitor. Um, and it's really easy to go in and they have like sentiment analysis and things like that. So you can search uh, a whole broad range of, of uh, sales calls, support calls, um, account executive calls, whatever the case may be to, to find uh, whatever you're looking for. So those are big. Um, and then uh, um, screen recordings, session recordings. We use a tool called Posthog. Um, oh, I was going to shout out um, uh, the, the product marketer who's in our is in the community. I've chatted and said, I love, love, love Posthog. 
Um, it's great for a whole bunch of quantitative analysis, but the thing that I love is that it has these recordings that are super, super easy to come in and find based on whatever attributes. And so um, if I want to see, hey, how is someone using this certain part of the product? I can go into that project. I can look at that product and literally watch them sort of click through and uh, see how they're interacting with it. And that's neat too, because sometimes you might see uh, like event logs and you can say, oh, okay, this person clicked here, this person clicked here. Um, but what you might not see is you might not see the, the session recording of them clicking in that one spot, going to the new page, and then mousing over each and every single word to read it very, very slowly. And you kind of go, hmm, maybe, uh, maybe we need to change the copy here, or maybe something about the UX is a little confusing, um, where you wouldn't have that insight if you were just looking at the, the strict, okay, this was clicked, and this was clicked, and this was clicked. Uh, so those are two of the tools that I use the most. Um, in terms of like capturing it, I think it's super, super important too, as well, to put that information down in in some sort of um, repository. Uh, maybe I, I hesitate to go as far as saying a wiki format, although that is what I do use. I use Confluence with our organization. We use Confluence as sort of our, our um, official documentation source. And so I use that to do some really deep cross-linking um, so that I can kind of I mean, I can get into a real rabbit hole of following things, but that way I've written something down. Um, I've maybe linked to the primary source, whether it's a wingman call, whether it's a post-hog recording. So someone can go back and look at it, but then also there's that really quick summary of what I saw, what I took away, and how we can connect those things. So I guess I, I kind of, it's, it really came, came down to three, I suppose, is you know talking to the people who are talking to the customers daily, um, um, reviewing um, those calls, those talks, to see what you can see from that, and then getting a little bit of a sneak peek into those things that aren't um, uh, organization-facing, those user recordings, to see what are our users doing when we're not necessarily right there with them. Thanks for sharing that, John. I, you know, the first two tools that you mentioned, I had actually never heard of, so I appreciate you you know, opening up my own mind to some new tools that I hadn't heard of. I'm sure other listeners would, will appreciate that as well. And if I can, I'd, I'd love to just build on um, your response just ever so slightly. You know, I, I think, as you said, customer success, sales, great teams to talk to when it's about uncovering pain points, things that customers love about their product, areas to explore further. But I've also just speaking personally, more recently started leveraging those teams as a gut check for any customer facing material that goes out into the market. And I'm sure most other product marketers do this as well. I've been doing a little bit more lately, which is why I wanted to bring it up. And I find, especially with the sales teams and the customer success teams, like they're really good at saying, oh, you know, this sounds great in theory from a marketing perspective, but it really doesn't fly with our customers or this, this, this isn't using language that our customers would use it. We would probably describe it in this way or, hey, you actually missed this entire solution space that our product solves for that our customers often talk to us about or that we proactively talk to about their customers. So I think, you know, uh, almost like a way to, to gut check any customer facing material that has a qualitative element to it that you can't quantify anything written essentially, I think is a great source. Um, and then again, in the uh, space of tooling, um, Winter is another tool that um, you know I've uh, seen used and I've heard good things about. 
It's a great way to test things like customer facing copy, get feedback from actual customers within that space, especially if you're not ready to share that with actual customers or, or put it out there in prime time. Um, it's a great way to just get some really good qualitative feedback on, on uh, copy, especially, um, and copy that's an extension of your positioning and messaging. So that's another tool I'll, I'll throw out there as well. But yeah, thank you, John, for sharing that list. Uh, I think most people are probably aware of Confluence, but the other two I think I'm, uh, will be uh, maybe new to some. So thank you for that. So on to my next question here, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of product marketers who find themselves in departments or organizations that really lean into and maybe even depend maybe to a fault on quantitative data to inform their day-to-day -day and even their longer-term strategies. What advice would you have for those product marketers in trying to not only explain that quantitative data isn't enough, but to also deliver qualitative data to the broader org in a way that they can understand and accept and not just feel is an intuition or a feeling or just someone's opinion? Yeah, it's, it's tricky because I in a lot of ways, really, really love quantitative data too. Um, but the problem is, it's kind of like I mentioned with the post-hog tool, is you can see these things and you can uh, put them uh, together and say, oh, people click here and they, and they leave here. So um, uh, that is that. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily tell a story um, of, or it doesn't represent um, how people can feel or will feel. Um, and depending on how you feel, uh, there can be some really different solutions. Um, and so for a really simple example is that if I was just monitoring, okay, someone's um, in a room uh, and then after 15 minutes, they leave. Um, then you have to say, oh, dang, they left the room after 15 minutes. Why'd they leave? Um, well, um, I, I see here that the temperature was, uh, at 78 degrees Fahrenheit. Maybe this person actually wants a cooler temperature. So I'm going to uh, take the temperature down to 76 and then it goes and the person leaves after 13 minutes and you're like, oh, well, that was better. Uh, cool. Great. Uh, maybe we should actually keep lowering the temperature and you keep lowering the temperature. And then all of a sudden something swings back and you're like, oh, you know, uh, let's go to 77. Uh, but actually the reason the person left was because they were hungry. Um, and, and it had nothing to do with the temperature, but you're just looking at that real simple uh, metric, that sing single number. And I guess um, most people aren't going to be as, as simple as looking at something like a page leave statistic in that case, the most obvious example. Most people aren't gonna look at a single data point and, and make drastic changes, but that's the kind of trap that you can fall into if you're really, really focused on that kind of, of quantitative data. Um, I had an example where um, I was working on basically uncovering what our best customers um, do. And there was this, we, we have a couple, um, we kind of work um, across uh, mid-market, enterprise, even some startup sort of businesses. Um, so we have a really wide range of customers and a couple of our enterprise customers, as can sometimes be the case, um, can be louder because they have more dollars behind them. And so um, there was, uh, there's, there's a product that was getting um, a ton of use. You know, we look at and we see, wow, millions of, of these different actions 
Um, and so we kind of say, this is an important product to our, our enterprise users. Look at all this feedback we're getting from this person. But then when I went and I looked at how it was getting used, I saw that a lot of um, uh, these actions that we were considering positive actions were actually sort of neutral or negative. They were like, like um, removing clutter. Um, so they weren't really using the products in a way that they were getting a whole bunch of value out of. Um, and uh, that one customer was also um, really, really bringing up the average. Uh, when you dive in, it was, you know, something like 40% of usage was them. They were a power user, no question. So I hope that most teams um, will look into the data that they see, the numbers, and kind of say, okay, where's that coming from? How can I understand it better? Um, but also, it might be easiest uh, to just, instead of grabbing the data and then trying to understand that data after, it's kind of a, a, an in tandem approach. Okay, um, we're releasing this. Um, while we're releasing this, let's talk to the customers. Let's listen to the success, the sales teams, understand um, what's happening, and then we can start to draw um, conclusions, or maybe not even draw conclusions. That's to uh, have a hypothesis um, that we can test out. In terms of like the broader organization, um, I was kind of speaking to the more specific teams there, but for the broader organization, kind of just being visible and telling stories, I think is, is, is one of the most important things. Um, the more that you can include storytelling in, in your uh, company culture, the more valid that it can be seen. And um, understanding that people want a little bit of that data too, then, then I think product marketers should be data informed as well and we can, we can bring those pieces in as well. Of course, it's not necessarily a case of one or the other. It's how you're using both effectively to really come to the best possible insider decision. Oftentimes, depending on, you know, with whom you're speaking or which team you're kind of talking with, well, a quantitative data can just feel like this very objective black and white, this is what the numbers are telling us, so this is reality. But really, it's the interpretation of that data that can end up being quite subjective. And to your point, oftentimes having those follow-up conversations, digging deeper, watching from that qualitative lens allows you to, as you said, tell that story and frame those numbers in a way that might actually counter... Um, be a counter, indirect uh, counter to the original insight you thought that quantitative data purely on its own was telling you. Um, so yeah, to, uh, you know, just to kind of echo what you're saying, quantitative data, I think, is really strong and help pointing you in the direction of what should be explored further through qualitative lenses where possible. Sometimes the numbers are the numbers and that's it. That's all you have access to and you got to make the best of the situation that you're in. But I think you're right, like where possible, throw on that lens, have those conversations, uncover those stories so that you can frame that data in the best possible way and come to those more informed decisions. I saw a tweet that uh, um, I can't, I can't uh, properly attribute, uh, but it's been stuck with me, um, is uh, dashboards are, dashboards are uh, astrology for executives. And I don't know if I agree fully, but I think it's a really, it's a really unique lens is, hey, you know what? Um, I see these numbers and that must mean things are going to be good. And then everywhere you look, you're going to start seeing good things or those numbers are bad. So everywhere I look, things are going to be bad. Um, uh, hopefully we're, we're 
doing a little bit more rigorous, but I, I can definitely relate to uh, that that feeling in an organization. So it's important to go beyond just the, uh, the astrology charts, right? Hundred percent. I love that. I'll probably steal that from from yourself or whoever uh, you said wrote the tweet. So yeah, I, yeah. I like that. Um, yeah, and I, and I think a perfect example of this is oftentimes in organizations, especially ones that sell primarily into enterprise, um, or maybe you know enterprise makes up a good portion of the revenue, but they're also in bid market. Um, you know, you might look at revenue growth and think like, wow, you know, the company's really growing. This is great, and then you kind of peel the onion back and you start doing a little bit more uh, digging, you realize, well, actually, you know, 60 plus percent of the revenue is actually being um, generated by two or three big accounts. And if the company were to lose those accounts, they'd be losing a significant percentage of their revenue. Um, now that's a very simplified example, um, but that's one that, you know, I've seen come up in, you know, whether it's cases through school or just in kind of hearing horror stories from, from other product marketers, other organizations. Um, and again, if you don't have that ability to dig deeper into the numbers or have conversations with your customers to figure out, you know, are they happy with the product? Yes, they might be spending a lot of money with us, but are they truly happy? Are they going to stick around? What can we be doing to make the experience better for them? How can we find other customers like this? Um, if you don't have that qualitative approach in mind as well, you can you know, put yourself in a very dangerous situation. So I, I just wanted to add that in there as well. Um, awesome. So, you know, you, you mentioned in the lead up to our conversation that customer interviews in and of themselves are often quantitative feedback in disguise. Could you elaborate on, on that for me? Yeah. And this comes from um, a report I did. Um, I did a report. I, I guess I kind of referred to that already where I was looking at some of our best customers. Um, and so I, I talked to um, a not insignificant portion, um, but not a large portion. Um, um, and I also kind of did some of these these sort of um, research methods that I was saying, you know, watching recordings, like like screen recordings or, or call recordings. Um, and then as I was presenting this report, uh, I did a, a video re uh, recording of it so that people could watch it um, and it could be concise. But as, as this video was playing in a company meeting, um, not even a, a quarter of the way through uh, the CEO was messaging me and saying, where'd you get this? What's going on with this? I don't believe this. Where's And and what he really wanted um, was he wanted to see um, check marks. If I did this interview, did this person say, I use this feature because of X? And, and that needed to be turned into a check mark. And I think in some ways, this is actually a really valuable way of, of taking qualitative research and then putting it into a quantitative lens so that those people who need that number focused approach um, can can um, look at it and, and understand impact and, and make a decision if they need to do Fermi math, whatever the case may be. But if that's how you are going into the qualitative research, um, then I think you're, you're setting up um, to find certain answers, right? Uh, so, okay, we're going to do customer interviews, and you need to do customer interviews based on um, how our customers educate themselves. Hello, Mr. Customer, how are you doing? I was wondering, what newsletters do you do you read? Oh, I read XYZ newsletter, as opposed to if you go in and you just have a conversation with the person, um, um, maybe they don't ever bring up newsletters. 
Um, maybe you could ask the question in a way where it's like, um, are there things that you do to educate yourself? So in some ways, both of those are, are going to give you different answers. And in some ways, maybe both of them are actually the right answer. Um, but if you're going in for tick box, then you meet, need to make sure that that's actually what you're trying to understand. Are you trying to understand a really specific answer to a problem or are you trying to gather more generalized insight? And again, when I think of the different ways that I do um, um, that research in terms of directly talking to customers or not, if I'm, um, if a customer says something to me or says something to a salesperson, I also wanna validate that the customer actually means it or actually lives up to it. Um, over COVID, we had a lot of startup customers who would come to us um, kind of uh, uh, thinking about having, uh, uh, I'm gonna start up my own business and do this thing and uh, I've got all these contacts, I'm gonna be so successful. And if I was just taking that right at face value, I'd go, oh, wow, this is great. Um, and then they might end up turning out to us and saying, yeah, your product was too complex, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then when we go in and we look at their activities, we see that, oh, actually, uh, they didn't log in after they made a purchase. They were just so drunk on the idea of, of having a business. Um, and so they were probably not a right fit. So having those, those customer interviews um, can be, they can turn into quantitative feedback in a positive way. Um, hey, here's a really great way to um, determine impact, understand um, uh, the, the, the size of something, or it can be in a negative way where maybe you're not actually seeing the full picture because uh, you're not uh, asking the right kind of questions. Yeah, one thing I wanna highlight for listeners that I think you touched on um, is this idea of when you're going to do things that might feel like they have a more qualitative lean to them, it's important to understand the what like what are you doing that activity for? You know, I have learned very early in my career um, through trial and error and through mistakes that surveys and interviews are great if you know an exercise in writing questions and you know talking with customers and getting answers. But if you don't go into those experiences knowing what is the outcomes that we're trying to uh, uncover, what are we going to do with this data once we have it? Um, that will inform how you frame the exercise in and of itself, right? Like, are you looking for understanding customer sentiment towards positioning and messaging or towards a new feature? Are you looking to quantify the number of customers who are taking a specific behavior or who have a specific, I don't know, threshold or willingness to pay for, you know, insert feature X, Y, Z. So if you don't truly start from kind of the end and work your way backwards, you're never really going to know which is the right approach to take and whether you should be going through this, you know, with a, heavier qualitative lens versus quantitative. I think, as we said earlier, it's important to have both, but where are you leaning a little bit more into? And I think what you also touched on in your example, that's super important as part of that outcome is who is going to be consuming the output? Is it going to be the entire org where you have to, as you said, tell a story to make sense of the data? Is it going to be the CEO who might have a very quantitative lean, who's going to want to see those check marks and those numbers and you know, really be able to peel back to understand this customer is worth this much to us. So I should care about it this much. Um, so you really have to understand who the consumer is. Otherwise, 
as you said, you could be giving this presentation to the company, the CEO says it, and they immediately try and call BS on what you're saying. And if you're not prepared to respond to that, it can put you in a pretty challenging position, I would imagine. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Cause I, I think that's an important lesson that, you know, product marketers in their career learn at various stages. I was fortunate enough to learn that very early on through some very uncomfortable experiences. Um, so if I can help anybody avoid that, um, I, I'm happy to do that. And I think you've provided some insights that will uh, definitely help them avoid some similar mistakes. Awesome. Well, listen, John, this has been great. We're already at our last question. Um, so I, I do want to um, thank you, obviously, for your insights here. And, you know, this idea of, you know, should I be leaning more into qualitative data versus quantitative data is a challenging one. And so I, I appreciate your framing and insights on, you know, the balance between the two and understanding how you can go into an experience and think it's going to be entirely quantitative, but there's a qualitative element and vice versa. So I appreciate that. So with my last question, it's when I ask all my guests, if you could be a product marketer at any company in the world for any product or service they offer, what company and solution would you choose and why? Uh, knowing this question was coming, I gave it a whole ton of thought. And I, I sort of have two answers. Um, my first one is uh, Ableton. Ableton is a uh, music production software, uh, uh, DAW as we call it in the industry. Um, and I, I love um, what they do and they're very much about creativity and uh, empowering people to try new things. Uh, but then I thought about if I would actually have much to offer as a product marketer and I'm like, dang, I wouldn't change a thing. Like I just come in and be like, yep, keep doing it. Let's, let's keep it. So kind of like a little bit of a challenge. So maybe something that I, I feel has a little bit more room for growth. Um, I'm going to say, the, the music distribution platform Bandcamp. Um, I put out some music there. Um, I bought lots of music there. Um, uh, and they've reached a market share where a lot of people are making really great um, lives and careers out of, out of uh, a Bandcamp experience. But also I think there's plenty of people out there who uh, uh, would buy music or would buy merchandise and things like that, that there's still some room for, for that to grow. So maybe I'll say Bandcamp. I think that's a great answer. And it's funny you mentioned Bandcamp. I actually listened to um, a podcast with, and I, th I think it was a product marketer who worked at Bandcamp or someone in the kind of monetization side of things. And I, I apologize to the, to the show. I can't recall it offhand. But from what I understand, Bandcamp is kind of in the process of trying these new monetization models in a way that really differentiates them from other music uh, streaming platforms like the Spotify's, like the Apple Music's of the world. Um, so I think that's an interesting choice. I feel like they're an area or, or a company rather that's really embracing a lot of product marketing practices, especially in positioning and differentiation. So yeah, I think that's a, a very inspired choice. Not one that I would have expected, but I think it makes a lot of sense based on what I've heard about the company and, and how you just framed it. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. If you're listening out there, let me know. I'm happy here, but I mean, come on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, like I said, John, this has been great. I really enjoyed chatting with you. I think you've shared a lot of good insights and examples from your career that'll help product marketers who are listening to this either get into the field for the first time or, you know, again, approach different qualitative and quantitative data or acquiring that data in a different uh, way. So thank you for sharing that. But yeah, this has been great. Um, before I let you go, if anybody does want to reach out to you, ask you any questions about what you do with Vendesta or 
maybe even talk to you about uh, Bandcamp and the music scene a little bit more. Uh, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? The best way, uh, just so that I'm aware of where you're coming from um, and, and the right frame for the conversation is, is through my LinkedIn. Uh, you can search me, John, uh, without an H. I guess you're probably, you probably were able to see that if you clicked on this podcast, but uh, just, just my name there. Um, in, my, in my bio, it even says, uh, reach out if you're interested in talking about Japanese ambient composers. So especially reach out um, if you've got that as well. You're, uh, you're ticking all the boxes. Yeah, quite, quite the niche. I'm curious to hear if anybody follows up uh, based on this listening alone. So thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you for putting that there. Again, like I said, this has been great. I'll let you go and I'm sure we'll be in touch. All the best, John. Thanks so much, Mark. For everyone still tuned in, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please help us spread the word to other product marketers. Before we leave you to get on with your day, if you want to get involved, here are a few ways you can. If you're a product marketer, and you want to come on the show and speak about your day, a specific topic, or your role in general, that's one option. If you want to flex your podcast hosting skills, being a guest host is another. And finally, if you or your company want to sponsor an episode, there's a third. Thanks again and have a great morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are.